Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Jim Goss, and this is an all-Asian affair. We are all uh, across the country, uh, and Bali, the boys, uh, currently, I believe, and I am in Singapore, and welcome, uh, Mackenzie. Thanks for having me, gents. Really appreciate it, and I'm pretty thrilled to have a good chat. As are we, mate. And so basically, give us a bit of rundown. You're you're a coach. Uh, You've completed or are completing your master's, I believe. Uh, Your alias is Macro Steve and you're surfing extraordinaire. Anything I've missed, feel free to uh, add to that list. Uh, Oh, yeah. So probably, um, yeah, work with Fortitude Nutrition Coaching is like a nutritionist. Um, We just do like nutrition stuff there, obviously. and then doing a master's kind of like at the pointy end of it. And my, I start my research, um, final research thing in Majiggy very soon. Uh, obviously, master's level is nothing even close to scratch the surface of what Jackson has done. But, you know, um, it's going to be, I'm going to try and look at, the aim is to look at energy availability in surfers. Um, so compare athletes uh, to just recreational surfers is, is sort of the goal, but we'll see how it ends up looking. Um, do a little bit of stuff for a company called Surf Science as well, which um, is like a surf nutrition entity, I guess I'd call it. They have a few products as well in the mix. And uh, yeah, live in Indonesia. Um, that's probably about, about it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, tell me a little bit. I've always wanted to ask you this. Where did Macro Steve come from? I think I started following you well into the piece and he was already well-established um, you know, cult figure amongst yeah. nutrition uh, folks. So tell, tell, tell the people what Macro Steve is all about. Oh, Macro Steve is a few things. Um, to, an, to a degree, it's probably my past coach self to a certain extent, um, mixed in with some other sort of rigid approaches um, to coaching that get thrown around where it's very much uh, coach-centred. Uh, it's not really cognizant or it, it's not, it, the coach hasn't really taken the top time to get to know the client and assumes that they have the same values and interests as, as they do uh, and want to do the same things basically with their, with their nutrition. Um, and there was a few other little things in the mix that kind of helped me form this macro Steve character, such as, um, you know, ages ago, like years ago, I wrote this little seven page ebook thing with like, seven simple example days of eating, um, which I just wanted to create a resource. And this guy was like calling me out on his Insta story because I included almonds in one of the meals. And he's like, that's fucking calorie dense. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's like, oh, that's fucking calorie dense. And like, I also didn't specify an exact amount of almonds. And he's like, this is why people can't lose weight. And like, sort of that prompted me to create this character called macro coach steve i don't know why steve though i think it was like oh actually it could have been because that biggest loser guy commando his name's steve so i feel like there was probably a bit of that in the mix but yeah i don't know why steve um fuck it just kind of sounds like a hardcore aussie bloke name who's like you know more like do this do this and yeah that's that's macro coach steve i reckon 
macro coach Steve. And, and I think it's a really good segue into what I wanted to discuss with you today, um, which was a lot about how you've come up with the concept of uh, nutrition toolkit. And rather than having a set meal plan, these very rigid uh, diet approaches, you describe the nutrition toolkit as a list of options uh, that can fit various situations, life circumstances, which is beneficial for, for when people encounter those, um, you know, uh, curveballs where they're unable to follow their meal plan. So the nutrition toolkit, what are the other benefits uh, of that over say a rigid meal plan or, um, you know, a set in stone uh, default diet that somebody has to follow? Yeah. So um, I guess the rigid, uh, sorry, the toolkit can be defined in a few different ways. Is it a toolkit of, meal ideas and snack ideas for lots of different circumstances or are we talking a toolkit of different dietary approaches whether it be something more for the populations that you you folks might work with such as bodybuilders you know your macro coaching for example uh, or would it be more of like the non-tracking side of things habit building and and sort of to me the benefits of a toolkit is it provides you with either a strategy or an option that is valuable and beneficial for all different circumstances whether that be different goals, different nutrition literacy, um, different stages of someone's nutrition journey. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like, obviously, by choosing the right approach or the right tool for the job, you're increasing the applicability of the intervention or the meal or the whatever for the person and that situation. Um, it also can be tailored quite a lot. It's, it can be very bespoke. And uh, it can cater for individual preferences. It's more of what I would call a client-centered approach where, you know, rather than just prescribing or providing advice or telling what to do or this is how it's going to be, you've taken the time to understand what sort of person your client is, um, what their life looks like. You've taken the time to um, understand what their deeper values and priorities in life are, what interests them, what sort of barriers they face. Uh, and then you've then trickled that down through the intermediate goals, through to the specific actionable, actionable goals and being able to apply an intervention that they're more likely to adhere to that is uh, going to have a lower effort cost relative to reward ratio for them. So again, increasing adherence um, as well as through implementing an appropriate intervention or strategy likely reducing the risk factors for that individual. So to provide an example, you know, macro tracking is sort of like, I view it as the go-to strategy in the evidence-based, you know, whatever, nutrition circle jerk. And it's a fantastic tool. It's got so many great benefits, but it's not always the right tool for the job. There are numerous situations where macro tracking can be a risky thing for some folks. For example, those who have had um, past disordered eating, those who... Um, you know, might also it might not be appropriate for certain folks. Their goals might not be very high level. Um, they might have a lifestyle that makes it very difficult or a job even that makes it diff difficult for them to feasibly consistently track their macros to a relatively accurate degree. So rather than fighting that, try, rather than just providing advice and giving them solutions, oh, you can track in this way, you can track in this way, um, you know, you can track it using this little hack or whatever, or, you know, rather listening to them rolling with their resistance and listening to their ideas as well. And if they don't have any ideas, providing them with the toolkit options. Um, and yeah, long story short, the toolkit just expands, in my opinion, 
the amount of different situations you can work, client situations you can work with successfully, it increases the applicability and the, the likelihood of adherence, and it reduces the potential risk that some interventions or approaches when used in isolation might bring. Long story short. <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, very thorough and detailed. Uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Jackson, Too thorough. No, no, that was good. Jackson, anything you want to uh, ask or add on there? I mean, like, I, I don't know much about the the specifics of it, but it sounds it sounds great in theory, right? This is all all that stuff just said there was like theoretical. I'd like to, um, like, is this a resource that you give to clients? Sorry, I'm a bit sort of um, uninformed on this. Is is that what it sort of is, or um, are you sell, selling it as an online resource or something like that? No, definitely not selling it. I'm definitely not giving it a resource. It's not really like a set. It's, it's not like it's a, a concept. It's a concept. From, it's a concept. Yeah, it's okay. like it's like if you have a client, it's like rather than just assuming that you know this is this rather than just saying this is my method, this is my method. Okay, mm-hmm. um, rather than just saying that this is my method, this is what all my clients do. This is the same strategy, the same process. You adopt more of a you know I'm going to listen to what the client is all about, what they want to do, and then I basically as a as a practitioner, I've got a toolkit of different strategies and options that I can utilize to help this client. Um, so sort of like this, it's like, I guess an analogy that carries a level of applicability, but that could be argued is a builder or someone trying to build a building is going to want more than just a hammer. There's going to be different tools needed for different processes of building that house. So if you have a toolkit, the process is going to be more efficient. Uh, it's going to be more effective and the house is probably going to be a little bit better. I guess that could be the way I describe it. But yeah, it's not like a resource. It's not like something that I could create as like a tangible document or something. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, yeah, so there's, there's, sort of two, there's two levels of this from, from what I've gathered in your explanation there and from obviously following online. There's the level of the coach where you're looking at the a number of strategies that they have available to coaching their clients, whether it be, say, mm-hmm. calories and macros, um, you know, a default diet meal plan. Um, giving them to, uh, meal options and ideas, habit habit formation, focus, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then for the client, it's giving them a, a toolkit of meal options and ideas uh, for various situations as they go through their diet. Is that basically sort of what it is in, in a nutshell? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that that's a fair summary, but just to sort of jump in there with the, the second part, uh, or actually we'll go the first part first. It's not always like you use this tool, or use that tool. Yeah. It's like a mix and match thing. Yeah. So someone might even be tracking their macros, but there might also be habit building components in there. So it might be, you know, for week one and three, you know, what habits would you like to focus on? Sally. Sally said, ah, uh, you know, I'm interested in eating more vegetables. And then you go into the action plan, the why, how, and all that sort of stuff. How do you want to do it? And that could be their focal habit for week one to three. And then, so you've got macro tracking within that, but then also you've added in the habit building thing. So you're, you're mixing and matching. So that's one thing that's important to mention. Then with part two, uh, you know, you can provide those default diets, like you said, um, and that will provide you with some options or provide a client with, you know, some toolkit items. But it's also helping the client work through um, meal ideas and snack ideas that suit them, suit their preferences, and as they encounter barriers throughout their journey, you know, oh, I was traveling for work or, you know, I had a late meeting and, you know, they slip, slip up and they do something that they deem to be undesirable.
desirable, you can help them build uh, a solution and that will add to their toolkit. So the toolkit item for when they have a late meeting and through experience, you can have that discussion to kind of guide them through building their own toolkit. So rather than, it's not just, hey, here's your toolkit. Yeah. I'm giving you like all these meal ideas rather than just throwing them at them. You're saying, okay, well, let's actually work on this over time and expand it as we work together and expand it through your experiences of your nutrition journey. So there's a lot of autonomy and agency given to the client uh, in this process, which I like. So Jackson, what are your... Yeah. I was, was going to say, it, it's funny to, to me, like um, this theoretical toolkit, it just to me sounds like how good coaches should be coaching. It's like, it's the alternative to one dimensional coaching, I guess, and which is highly relevant in sort of recent times where we're seeing this big general shift in the increase in popularity of online coaching. And a lot of the lower grade coaches coaching like calculators, essentially like algorithmic coaching. It's like they've got tool to, they've got basically two tools to use and it's assess whether they are prog progressing their body weight at a desired rate. And if not, it's a calorie intake up or down or it's a cardio um, a, a cardio prescription up and down. And that's basically all they've got. Um, so I 100% agree. And it's almost annoying to me that we have to talk about this because it, it, it just should be how coaches coach anyway. It's it's catering the approach to the goals, lifestyle, psychology of the individual as opposed to being like this. Per, all these people need macros. So, yeah, I... I, I I've talked about this a little bit recently, but like the the basic coaches, they will just coach the physiological principles and, and or the fundamentals. And that'll be like macros, how much protein, carbs, and fats they should be targeting in their day. And maybe they'll even go to a to a higher level of of saying, okay, we're gonna have specific timings and frequencies and and things like that. But like true good coaching is trying to unpack the psychology of the individual and catering your approach to that. You guys would be the first to know that, um, you know, or the first to acknowledge that the calculation coach approach probably isn't something that you're too stoked about, if you will, or advocate for. Um, but I mean, to throw a bit of uh, empathy back at those sort of coaches, it's like, um, you know, coaching to this very bespoke level where you take the time to get to know your clients uh, and you have multiple different systems, it can be quite time consuming from a coaching perspective and very mentally draining. Um, and, you know, from a business perspective, especially if you're doing training as well, which I don't do, I can just see how that would be very difficult for a lot of those coaches. Um, and look, the other thing is, you know, a lot of different coaches will attract different demographics. Like you guys are going to work with, I would imagine at least, although I'm speculatively saying this, um, very different clients to what I would work with. And therefore, our approaches are not going to be the same. And that's completely fine. But yeah, I do. I am of the strong opinion that it is worth taking the time to get to know your clients because a, a more it, it bolsters that co client coach relationship. The client feels heard and understood, builds that relationship, better outcomes for the clients, um, like rather than using shame and those sort of things, um, using empathy and positive regard, better client, better outcomes for the clients a more fulfilling career experience for the coach, thus increasing longevity of um, the practitioner. And there is a paper that I will include in my um, 
presentation to UEBC where um, lower levels of empathy from practitioners was associated with higher rates of burnout. Interesting, interesting. I think a lot of the sort of unidimensional um, coaching comes from people who are just starting out in the industry and they haven't actually um, garnered a breadth of experience with a wide variety of people yet. Um, they're young coaches who are online. They've sort of s- skipped working with people face-to-face and they're just coaching online. Um, so so they haven't really experienced the human component of coaching yet. Um, or it's people on the other end of their coaching career, say, for example, Elaine Nordens, who are you know creating apps and stuff where seriously, it's like they've had all the human experience and they're like, fuck this. I, I don't you know have the scope to work with this many people and be you know emotionally present for these people. So I'm going to create something automated and that's how I'm going to make my living. I see that to be the two primary sort of situations that coaches who are doing this, here's your calories and macros, started their career, they don't understand people or at the end of their career and they're like, I'm done with people now. So here's your That's a good point. That's a fucking good point. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's sort of how I see it. So where does uh, macro coach Steve sort of sit on that equation? He's, is he starting out or is he at the end of his career? Nah, I'd say he's more at the end of his career. He's like that bitter old dude who's been in the gym for like 20 years. Yeah. He's like, oh, I fucking hate these lazy clients, yeah. bloody. He's that, your macros, you're softy. Get he's that stereotypical dude in Thailand who's just been there for like 30 years, pumping himself full of juice. He's got the loose skin, the tats. He's got his little Thailand yeah, on his bike out the front. And he's telling you, telling you that you could do more. You could be better, that he could have one day been a champion, but he didn't, you know, injuries, all that kind of stuff. He, he's that guy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we've all got the same 24 hours in a day. And, um, you know, you just don't want it bad enough. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, and yeah, he's got those shoes, those bodybuilder shoes. You know, the big red ones, the high top ones. <laughs> the fucking uh, Kai Green specials. Oh, yeah, the Raptors. Those ones. The Raptor those fucking ones. Raptors. Yeah, he's got those ones, those fucking shoes. All right. <laughs> Another thing I think, um, fuck, we, we've sort of touched on a lot here, but feasibility of diet and obviously long term adherence is, is a huge thing that you bang on about, Mac. Um, and, you know, we've, we've sort of seen uh, cheat meals uh, get, you know, bashed a lot in recent times. And obviously the terminology is important, right? Uh, because, you know, the words we use in first certain meetings and they take on a different meaning depending on the person and their interpretation of the word, whether it be a literal uh, interpretation or something more subjective. Uh, but you like to deem a, a cheat meal a, as an indulgent meal, right? And we know that indulging can even carry a negative connotation and is viewed as something that we, we shouldn't do if we're dieting or trying to lose weight. Um, however, you do recommend indulgent meals. So can you elaborate as to one, what indulgent means to you when you hear that word? Because I'm sure a lot of people would think indulge means to stuff yourself silly, like a, a cheat meal kind of thing. Um, and then elaborate as to why you think it's a really good idea for dieting and long-term adherence. Yeah, that's a fantastic topic. Thank you for asking it. Um, so the first thing I think I'll mention, and I'm going to speculative, speculatively say that we'll agree on this, is the term cheat meal can just fuck right off. Like you can just throw that one right away. Um, in terms of the indulgence, so the, the premise of it is understanding that food is more than just fuel for the machine. Obviously, a bodybuilder 
in a prep, you know, yeah, food is filled from machine. Um, but, you know, in those, not in those contexts, food serves a lot of different purposes. And, you know, rather than labeling foods as good or bad, it recognizes that there are foods out there that can be consumed for the purpose of, um, you know, what would be used under the umbrella of indulge. And it could be because you like the taste of a particular food and you find it enjoyable. It could be because there's a valuable social experience that's going to enhance your life via your social health. Um, so there's many different reasons why uh, the concept of eating something that's not nutrient dense or got protein or not doesn't have fiber or whatever, in my opinion, can and should be a part of a health seeking diet. And as you blokes would also know, and I know this for sure, is you know, your diet doesn't have to be a hundred percent clean for you to be healthy and achieve your goals. With that being said, obviously there are considerations like, okay, with enhanced palatability, um, it might be difficult to control calories, blah, 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 blah. All, all very, very, very valid and true. Um, but the idea of the daily indulgence is giving yourself permission to eat something for a different reason, to help someone move away from the, the dichotomous or thinking about nutrition in a dichotomous manner. And the wording of the indulgence or the phrasing or the thought process around it is very important. And I like how you raised the point, and that actually challenged me a little bit there, uh, where you said a lot of people might think of an indulgence as just like go all in or, or cheat, I believe you said something along those lines. And I think that's a really good uh, point to touch on because sort of if I was working with a client and we were talking about this topic, and I would sort of be saying, well, what is the purpose of indulging? What are you actually trying to get from it? And it might be due to an upcoming birthday or a, um, a wedding or just a dinner with their partner on the weekend and they might say something like oh you know i want to spend time with this person um i want to enjoy this because i love fine food you know i've got a client who lives in london and she's you know fine food and going out to restaurants is like one of her biggest interests in life it's a biggest hobby so it's sort of like well what are you trying to get from this and then it's saying okay so you want to get xyz from it what sort of approach to you to this meal or what sort of level of indulging fits that mold is it the all-in cheat meal style where you eat until you can't walk or is it adopting more of a connoisseur approach where you say this is an indulgence i'm enjoying it for these various reasons um, the amount i need to achieve these reasons is somewhat in the conservative realm because i'm also cognizant of my health seeking values slash weight loss goals or whatever um, so we kind of work through it based on that sort of framework and i guess the way i would define it would be a consciously approached decision to indulge for a purpose um, that considers what would be the minimum effective dose needed for the intended purpose or what you're trying to get from the indulgence uh, that also considers your longer term health seeking values and goals. Yeah, I'll read that. Jackson, what do you think about uh, the indulgent meal? It's, it's actually nice to hear someone that shares a similar opinion to mine on the matter, uh, I would dare say that there is very few people, coaches in the evidence-based crowd that support what we're talking about here. So like scheduled off-plan free meals, reward meals, whatever you want to call them. Um, like Brandon Kempter, for example, love him, great guy. 
Um, we we talked about we talked about them a fair bit when he was here, and like he's he's very like of the what I would consider traditional evidence based approach, where it's like no, there's no such thing as off plan meals. It's like just estimate, track it, fit it in all that sort of stuff. He, he titrates them in. Yeah, he bespokes them. <laughs> um, and and I for for three out of every four clients that that I work with. Um, they'll have at least probably one off plan meal scheduled and the instruction is important. So like things being said, like it's not Ben and Jerry's on the couch is something that I'll use pretty often. It's like, I want you to go out to a restaurant with a family or a friend and order something regular off the menu, um, eat until you feel satiated but not beyond and, and not until you feel uncomfortable. And the purpose of this is not to hyper consume calories. It's a, it's a opportunity for you to have a social occasion and a sense of normality in your week um, at a time where potentially there's a lot of abnormality in your week in terms of the, the, a fair bit of restraint that's going on in the majority of your week. And I think having that ability to be able to maintain somewhat of a social life and somewhat of normality, especially around the weekend when most people are sort of want to let their hair down a little bit, I think that does a profound amount for the transition post-diet especially because you, you do have some people very capable of saying, okay, well, 12 week, 16 week target. And, and that's the end game. And they can go one, they can go with no off plan meals or no social meals for that whole period of time, but it's not a sustainable 10 year approach. And so what's going to happen sort of after, after that period of time. So I think, um, I think that there's a, a lot of merit for, for having, them scheduled and they won't work for everyone i think that's probably an important thing that i've learned it's if it starts triggering a, a binge or if it's if it's being followed by a sense of of guilt or shame or anything like that there probably needs to be an audit of, of what's going around it and maybe even pull them out for a period of time um but for, for at least my clients, I'll get them to report what they have. or like to share, share your order what you have. And so I can just sort of keep tabs. And if I see like red flags going up with like things that look like it's eating in what I would deem sort of a, a non-normal uh, manner, then then I'll, I'll sort of step in and make some adjustments. But I, I still think for 75% of the time, for the people that, that, that they are done well, 75% of the time, and, and when they are done well, I do see – superior at least from my like observations and that conclusion that i'm making subjectively i do see better outcomes in terms of sort of the well-being that can be maintained across the the diet and the transition into sort of a less restrictive period of of a a less restrictive dieting approach post that um just one i wanted to make another point there which which off the back of what you just said um jackson you spoke about transitioning to a less restrictive period and you also mentioned sort of like um, what's more viable sort of in a 10-year year sort of perspective or a longer-term perspective. Um, one thing that I personally see a lot of value in with, you know, those um, <clears throat> discretionary meals, if we want to call them, those controlled or conscious discretionary meals is um, 
for me, unless it's necessary, my typical recommendation is to not actually track it. Um, and now they can record it or whatever, um, or they can use hand size portions and, and, you know, it's, but really it's an opportunity to practice calorie consciousness or conscious eating without needing to rely on numbers and data. And I personally see this as holding a lot of value for someone who is in a tracking phase for the clients of mine who are tracking because it gives them an opportunity to practice those skills. So when it's time to move away from tracking, it's another when it's tool. time, yeah, it's, it's, it's when it's time to move away tracking or when they're on that holiday uh, or when they're at that wedding or something, they're not going to say to themselves, oh, I can't track this. Therefore, you know how you see hear people say, oh, if I don't track it, I'll just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. It's like we want to avoid that situation by giving them the confidence and the skill that they can stay conscious and controlled. And I feel like practicing that in the real world um, is pretty, I see that as pretty pivotal. And look, they stuff up, people slip up, they overindulge, that, that stuff happens. But trying to flip it around into a positive using positive regard and um, empathy so they don't feel shame and such a high level of guilt or you know, a bit of guilt's natural. Um, to try and flip it around into an opportunity to actually learn. So, you know, you went to this dinner, this this uh, birthday dinner, you had, you know, three more slices of pizza and two extra drinks than you would have liked that would have been deemed um, appropriate for, you know, the health-seeking sort of middle round, middle uh, road approach. Okay, what can we learn from this? What, what, what can you do differently next time? Um, and then the next time we can practice that. So I see so much value in that. But yeah, obviously there are plenty of situations where, you know, you would want to track that, that meal um, and tracking would be appropriate for the goal and beneficial from an education perspective. You know, I think there's also a lot of truth from the idea of tracking it so you know how many calories are in it. Like, oh shit, there's like 1,500 calories in this pizza. I would have never have known. So yeah, I see value in either direction, um, but I also see a lot of value in the non-tracked variant of the meal. Yeah, I think most people come into nutrition coaching or a diet with a very binary and dichotomous perspective on nutrition. They're either on the plan, off the plan, these foods are good or bad. And I think the role of a good coach is to get people familiar with the gray. So learning about, you know, obviously calories, macros, and, you know, that, hey, there's no such thing as good food, bad food. And then also being able to then transition them to a place where they can see periods of non-tracking as being okay as well. And I think with situations like this, it's very context dependent and you have to take it on a case by case basis as to how you approach these things. But for many people, it's about going into these experiences where they're not going to track or they're going to indulge and having the training wheels on at first. So saying, okay, yep, you can go and indulge, um, you know, giving them some more guidelines and prescriptions around what they should do. Um, because I'll feel okay with that. And then I've certainly seen in my experience that that works better at the start than letting them just indulge, you know, without any sort of guidance to say, yeah, just enjoy the occasion, whatever, and indulge. You do have to have some training wheels on, more guidance around it. And then over time, um, you know, they learn from those experiences. And I think the reflection is a huge part of that um, is them feeling, okay, that was probably too much. You know, that wasn't a good idea to eat the whole pizza and then three, you know, tubs of Ben and Jerry's. Um, and then next time they dial it back. Um, and have you seen anything in your experience that can help the client sort of make that transition a little bit quicker? Um, as in being able to approach discretionary meals in that sort yeah. of not overindulging manner. Yeah. Um, 
absolutely kind of in alignment with what you said, having the training wheels on. Um, I don't necessarily think that it needs to be tracking as the training wheels. I think because there are like, I've got clients who flat out do not want to track. They, they don't like going on their phone um, or they're just not very good with technology, but that's just an example. Like I think the training wheels can be lots of different things. It could even be guidance around, well, going through that discussion of what is the purpose? What are you trying to get from it? What do you think is the uh, approach that aligns best for that? If it's something that's planned in advance, you know, they might know where they're going to actually eat and they can look at the menu and sort of, we can say, okay, well, what, what option here do you feel best aligns with the purpose? So sort of talking through it in advance. Um, then I also think protein and plants model is really helpful. Um, so advising them to, uh, or suggesting, Hey, you know, focus on getting a solid portion of plants and protein in the meal. First and foremost, when you're ordering, uh, be cognizant of some added fats because that's where you're going to get a lot of uh, additional calories, things like certain cooking methods that you want to think about, um, uses of oils and whatnot. Um, and then also potentially some hand size portion techniques or ideas when it is viable. Um, it's difficult for a thing like a spaghetti bolognese, but if you've got like, you know, something that's pretty clear cut, like chicken sits or salad chips, you can see like, okay, I'm going to aim for a palm of protein um, and, you know, a cupped handful of, of the chips or whatnot. And if there's more chips left over, then I'll just sort of pass on them. Uh, and also doing things like, can I share the indulgent component of the meal to enhance the enjoyment or the social experience? You know, sharing a chips or sharing a dessert with someone. So you're enjoying that together and therefore the portion size is also smaller, but you're still attaining the experience that you wanted. You're still attaining the benefit of enjoying that dessert, for example. Um, awesome. That's it, yeah. I think Jackson had a point he wanted to raise. Yeah. Um, so I think it's interesting that people associate um, off-plan meals, cheap meals, free meals with poorer relationships with food or at least exacerbate, exacerbating poor relationships with food, whereas I actually think trying to track those occasions can actually be developing worser relationships with your eating and your food because you go into these uh, situations where the goal of it is for mental relief, right? Uh, that's at least where where my framework of thinking comes from. And now you've got the client trying to guess the amount of oil that might be in the dish, guessing the portion size, hyper-analyzing the menu prior playing macro, macro Tetris with all the different options, that's causing mental strain, not relief. So that's, that's one of the reasons why I'm sort of a little bit anti trying to track off-plan meals or social meals. And then secondly, even if you do go down the route of like, oh, I'm going to fit this in, which everyone likes to say, and I think that's sort of a, a rationalization for them feeling like they haven't broken their plan. Um, even if you track it, you, there's a fucking shot in the dark that you're going to be actually accurate because we know at least from the research if you're pulling data from menus from like commercial restaurants and stuff like that that they can be anywhere upwards of 200 percent inaccurate and then if you're if you're not going by the menu if you're just going by your own skills and knowledge of of nutrition then you have a tough you have a tough job to try to estimate the contents of oil, the contents of sources and, and things like that. And, and the less experienced you are, the, the bigger the error margins are going to be in your estimates. But even for people who I would say are, are relatively um, relatively experienced, like, for example, um, just to, 
to add to this, uh, we had um, a bunch of like fitness people in Bali and we went to one of the fitness restaurants and it's a fitness restaurant, but the the calorie contents of the meals are very, very high. And there's things like coconut oils and things like that. And, and I knew all the... the I know the one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I won't roast them because I've got friends there. But um, so, like, I, I know all the calorie contents of these meals, and, I, and some of these people, like, ex- experienced coaches. And just as sort of this game, I was getting them to, like, estimate the calorie contents of, like, the waffles that we're eating and, and shit like that. And a lot of the time, they're, they're, they're 100% off. You know what I mean? Like, there was a 50% estimate of what was actually in the meal. So even for people who are experienced, they have a pretty tough time trying to gauge, gauge what's, um, what's actually in, in, front, in front of them when they're eating. And, and this is dangerous because they go home and they look at my fitness pal and they're like, yep, tracked it, stayed on plan, ticked that day. And in reality, they're, they're far from it. Yeah, I think you're definitely going to have people who will try to track and control what they eat out and they'll feel better about it. And then those who will feel worse if they do as well. And that's going to depend on uh, obviously what they've eaten and um, how accurate they are. Mackenzie. Just one more point to that. Yeah. I just think the idea of um, people think like if it's tracked, it's good. If it's not tracked, then it's, it's bad and it's off plan, but an off and a non-tracked meal I would almost say to that, that's part of the plan. Like rather than say it as an off-track meal or an off-plan meal, make it part of the plan. Like we, you know, part of the plan is actually practicing this skill. This is part of our coaching plan. It's, it, it involves, you know, if you actually track every single meal, that would be off-plan, so to speak. And I think framing in, in that way can help people move away from the idea that what they're doing is taking them away from their desirable path. Um, because as soon as they're off track, hey, I'm off track, uh, I've fallen off the wagon, then usually or often in my observations at least, that can result into in um, sort of that self-sabotage that continues catastrophizing negative thoughts and, and shame, make it more difficult to then go and control calorie intake later on. Um, so I think, yeah, saying like this is part of the plan um, is kind of a bit of a mindset set shift that in my opinion can help people not view these things as inherently bad for their relationship with food or bad for their goals or anything like that. And I would agree with uh, Jackson and say um, being able to nail social meals is a fantastic thing for your relationship with food because it basically moves you away from the idea that I can't do them and it's because they're off track and bad. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's, It's how you frame it. It's making the client appreciate and buy into the idea that it, it's part of the strategy that's going to facilitate the attainment of their long-term goals. Um, and, and that can be a really tricky thing to communicate or at least to get somebody to buy into when they're coming to the coaching uh, table with a host of dichotomous thinking, uh, you know, very rigid, restrictive thoughts around food and diet um, and they view their progress as being on or off plan and stuff like that. So uh, that's definitely something for coaches uh, to work on. And it's not something that would come overnight. I wouldn't imagine. Would it McKenzie? No, we need a, we need a, we need a, we need to coin a term and just shield the fuck out of it for these meals. So on that note, it's actually not a good term to, to use. No, it's yeah. Framing their, 
perceptions of, of nutrition, really. That's like, yeah, that's mm-hmm. fucking hard. Is bland better for fat loss, Mackenzie? We know that uh, physiological hunger as well as uh, hedonic factors are going to influence, um, you know, our desire to eat a certain food. Um, obviously, the more palatable and tastier food is, the more we uh, want to seek it out and we want to eat it. Um, and that's, I guess, the theory behind why bland foods are uh more viable for adherence to a lower calorie, you know, diet that's going to have an energy deficit, all the rest of it. Um, but you've discussed previously that there are some drawbacks and consequences uh, to a bland and boring diet. And I know Jackson's an advocate of a quote unquote bland diet uh, for fat loss. And I would agree that for the, for his uh, context, that's probably a good idea. So what are the uh, drawbacks of a bland diet? Um, and how does this impact long-term adherence? I think that um, for fat loss, for dedicated fat loss, especially a fat loss phase, going down a bland approach makes a lot of sense. It makes more sense. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, palatability is a consideration that will influence, I guess, to put it simply, how much you're going to eat. Um, but I think that, saying that my diet's going to be bland exclusively, maybe not for a shorter dedicated fat loss phase, but more as a long-term theme. Um, I think that firstly creates a, a roadblock to viewing social meals as not a bad thing or, you know, viewing them as um, still on track. Um, and I think that it also reinforces the notion that foods are good or bad because I'm going to eat a bland diet Therefore, um, foods that are not bland or fit that mold are not part of what I'm meant to be doing. So in my opinion, it, there's, it could possibly reinforce this idea of that dichotomous around foods being good or bad. Would you um, say, sorry, Mackenzie, that the same could be said for high volume foods? Absolutely. And that, that's something yes. that uh, is it's more of a conceptual issue with the bland food being viewed as good, high volume, good uh, more so yeah, than a really good point. Itself. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. There's a lot of things like, oh, for example, old, old macro coach Steve who called me out on almonds. Almonds are bad because they're high in calories because they're high in calorie den- density. You know, just moving away from that idea, I think in the long term is beneficial. In terms of adherence to calorie control, um, yeah, this is speculative. Um, I think... Yeah, like I said, a, a bland approach for an acute phase, like I'm going to do more of a mini cut for a period of time or I'm a bodybuilder competing and you know doing a prep or something, uh, just a disclosure statement. I don't work with bodybuilders, so the listeners know that. Um, Macro coach Steve does. Yeah, he definitely does. He makes his 60-year-old client who just wants to lose five kilos, he makes her do a prep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think... Like, you know, the thing is, like, people can say I'm never going to eat chocolate again because it, it it's not bland. It doesn't fit the mold of a bland and boring diet. Just like people could say I'm never going to eat almonds again because it's not high food volume, low calorie per bite or whatever. Um, but I think these foods are always going to make their way back into your life. Like, you know, I could say to myself, oh, I'm never going to eat chocolate again. I'm going to go to Christmas Day and my grandma is going to be like, here you go. And if I haven't had chocolate for a year, again speculative and I'm, I'm open to being thrown like getting pushed back from this 
But I'm probably going to be like, oh, my God, chocolate. Fuck, give it to me. I'm going to eat, eat, eat. But if I have chocolate consistently or if I enjoy foods for the purpose of indulging relatively consistently in health-seeking portions, you know, with the diet overall theme being that whole food focus, whatever, um, I personally feel like my ability to consume that indulgent food in this example, chocolate, to be far in a, in a far better place. Um, so I guess that would be my stance. I'm not anti-bland diet by any stretch of the imagination. I, I guess you could say that I'm not an advocate of a bland diet always in all contexts, even if it's fat loss. You're not a fan of assigning bland foods a halo and saying these are good. The whole halo. Yeah, effect. exactly. Because yeah. I think also yummy foods can, well, yeah. the thing is also taste is also um, subjective. Yeah. You know, yeah. like purple sweet potato, that's a whole food that's minimally processed and all that. But that shit is like fucking crack, man. <laughs> yeah, I fucking love it. How good is it? Yeah. I feel like not, not, many, not enough people in the fitness community know, know about purple sweet potato. Yeah, at least at least I'm uh yeah a silo. Be the next week mix. The next week mix. Fuck, chuck some peanut butter and honey on. Actually, that would go down a treat. Um, Mm. yeah, interesting points. I would echo your thoughts there. That the more you restrict yourself from a certain food, the more focused you become on it. And and I don't know the I guess technical or like the underlying mechanisms behind it, but it's like I've got kids. The more you tell them not to do something or not to touch something, the more they fucking want to do it, the more they want to touch it, the more they focus on it. Like the more you breathe life into something being not allowed, it's like there's an innate part of us that is curious to, to want it more and to seek it out more. And I definitely think that being able to have it and allowing yourself to have, say, chocolate makes you not want to have it as much. And when it's there, yeah. you're not as phased or, or fussed by it. I definitely think that's... Um, Something I've seen in, in experience, Jackson. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, really keen to hear what you have to say on this, actually, Jackson. Yeah, so I, I'm not I'm not advocate of of bland foods all the time year round. I think it just needs to be scaled with your hunger. Now, if you're not in a dedicated fat loss phase, your hunger should probably be okay. So having regular treats or having a, a few squares of chocolate each day is probably not going to put you in a place of significant threat to your adherence um whereas translating that to a fat loss phase we actually do have research to suggest that maybe it could so research shows that the overall amount of let's call them treats consumed in a week is not associated with the level of cravings that someone experiences but the frequency of those treats is so basically what what it's saying is that you should take the amount of treats that you plan to have and sort of isolate them into less frequent consumption. So instead of having two Oreos a, a, a day, maybe have 12 Oreos um, on, on a weekend day, that according to the research, that suggests for easier hunger management or, or easier management of cravings. And, and this is why I like to have social meals sort of, like in these infrequent social meals where highly palatable foods or more palatable foods can be consumed because we know that that social meal, having a nice restaurant meal is going to be palatable and it's going to lead to an increase in drive to eat according to the, the research. But I think that that is a superior approach to having 
regular treats every day and having no social meal, but tracking everything. And that would be sort of like the traditional IIFYM approach where you have like fit in some treats, like nothing's off the table, blah, 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 but like don't have cheat meals or free meals. Um, according to where the research is at, it actually suggests that this traditional IIFYM crowd, evidence-based crowd, we've probably got our priorities um, in the inverse. Do you think that there is like a sweet spot where the infrequency thing can be taken too far? So you suggested, or from my understanding, once a week is superior, according to the research, to like a little bit every day. So, you know, two Oreos every day compared to say 12 a week. Do you yeah, think that, there's a sweet oh, spot where drawing out to like once a month is, you know, that starts to become negative or, you know, even longer and then you start to see drawbacks or it goes the other way? Do you think, yeah, do you think there's like a sweet spot? Yeah, there is going to be a sweet spot and I haven't quite figured it out yet. Like, for example, if someone's on an extremely bland diet, like on one end of the scale, I'm talking like brown rice and boiled chicken and then you're introducing like Ben and Jerry's and sushi, like I think that has a worse psychological effect and impact on relationships with food and your drive to eat in the days following. Like having that like hyper, hyper palatable food occasion and then having to then transition back to the opposite end of the spectrum, like going from one end to the other, like in two consecutive days. I think that that, like even though that sort of supports what I was just saying in my last comment, I think that that tends to have a negative effect. So there is a balancing point and I'm not quite sure where the balancing point is um, because it's say it's we're, we're using terms like bland versus palatable, but it's like, it's a scale in reality, isn't it? It's like, I, I, I'm, I'm not programming brown rice and boiled chicken or boiled white fish for my clients, but like I still consider my foods to be relatively bland, but it's not the, on the super end of the spectrum. So it sounds like there's um, two, um, two considerations there. There's the like palatability of the food that they're going to consume in this indulgence uh, compared to their regular foods. So that on that scale, and then you have a frequency component added into that. So if somebody's eating really bland foods and they're moving up the palatability scale to say Oreos that go on the other end of the spectrum, there's going to be a consideration of that as well as how often they're going to do that. So I think that's going to be hugely dependent on the context because if you're somewhere in the middle of the palatability scale, you probably could have more frequent um, indulgences because you're going back to something that isn't that poor tasting. So you're not going to want to crave that. Whereas if you're going from one end to the spectrum, you probably want to, delay that and have that less often because it'll just cause you a lot of difficulty going back to your regular diet. Yeah, I'm almost certain. And I haven't been able to find any research on this yet, but it's something that's been on my mind for like a while in terms of like a study that could potentially be done. But like you have these things called like pleasure scores on like when people eat foods or, or meals. And I'm almost certain that the bigger difference in the pleasure scores of your palatable versus bland food eating occasion, the bigger that difference, the the is going to be associated with a bigger drive to eat cravings and probably like instances of binge eating, I reckon. And yeah, so yeah. that's where you would have those kind of uh, indulgences less frequently if you're having a really bland diet. And you'd probably have mm. indulgences more frequently if your diet is higher on the pleasure score on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Observationally, 
I feel like that's got to be on the money. That big peak and trough. Like if you've yeah. got your usual diet and then you've got like weekend eating or indulging and there's like this big gap between it, I feel like that's potentially more of a... It's glorified. Oh, I'm putting indeed. myself in a... Yeah, I'm putting myself in a risky position by doing this. Whereas, you know, like I really think it's important also to consider like, well, what is the definition of a bland diet that's ideal for fat loss? Is it the one that's just poached chicken with plain brown rice and plain broccoli? Or is it one that's like a bit up, you know, you may be allowed to put some mm. spices on it. You know, you got maybe salmon in there as well. And like all those salmon's too high calorie, don't have that. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, I just think it's important because that, that you're bringing up that side of things a little bit, but it still fits within, in my opinion, that framework of being bland. But by doing that, when you do choose to have a social meal or indulge consciously, the gap is narrower. Therefore, based on this, in my understanding, reducing the risk yeah. of that turning into glorified binge eating. Yeah, absolutely. It's like cooking your chicken, say, for example, um, in a nonstick pan with no oil versus being able to have a little bit of like spray on oil, using some spices, having more than three foods in your, you know, fucking meals. Like it definitely, if you move up, um, you know, that end of the palatability scale and you're able to have some, uh, I guess, additions to your meals that would make them uh, more enjoyable. It would make the, the, like the desire to have those high palatable meals less. Right. Um, so if you would have them more frequently, you wouldn't um, be at risk. I wouldn't think, but that's interesting, interesting concept. Uh, definitely something I'd like to see um, research. There's nothing on that. Is there Jackson? No, it's something, it's something I'm still like it. Cause the, the IIFIM stuff is in, terms of like dieting on foods with a high pleasure rating it's relatively like new stuff and so uh, i it sort of makes sense why we don't have a heap of of research on it but like just from like observations with things like the people who are like hardcore iifimers i i I find from my experience that they, they struggle to diet they struggle to um they so they struggle to endure the discomforts of a calorie deficit more yeah. than people who have been sort of more accustomed to trying to eat clean. If we if we say it if we say it like that, um, like I, I've got clients that like who will, will not go sort of meal plan approach, and they'll they'll be sure that they need that they have to do macros only, and like I'm I'm looking at like these oat bowls that they that. I'm thinking of one girl, an example that she's making, and it's like she's got the base of oats, and then there's Oreo eight, eight, eight different crunch. ingredients, and like like twenty grams of Captain Crunch, and like ten grams of Biscoff, like all around. I'm like, God, this is crazy because people see like flexible dieting as like the oh, it's so great for like managing our eating disorder symptoms and and having really good relationships with food. But I look at this and like this is a fucking red flag a poor relationship with food like if i've ever seen one and i'm all I think- for people like not having assigned periods of the day to eat a certain food like i don't think that there should be a time where you have your oats if you want to have your oats for lunch sure why not in theory it makes sense but there's something about having chocolate you know before the sun <laughs> comes up that just doesn't sit well with me i don't know why and you know smearing it around with berries and stuff doesn't make it better I don't know. What do you guys think? It just doesn't sit well with me. I think you've made a very healthy meal 
a very calorie conscious meal and turn it into an indulgence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, before, you okay just, yeah. before you do your um, cardio, we sip on amino acids. But they'll, they'll never admit it, it's an indulgence because it's all c- calorie tracked. But I mean, like the the mental ordeal to go through like, like 13 fucking separate measurements and like the 13 different ingredients to like prepare that meal. It's like, God, when we're talking about like sustainability dieting, we are so far from the mark. I love when, when I see on Instagram, when, when, I, see, when I see chicks have like their, um, their, uh, what I eat in a day, uh, you know, things or whatever. And they have like 12 grams of like peanut butter listed in the, as one of their, literally their meals. Literally. Like, yeah. Fuck, I can just imagine them like preparing this and like scraping off. Like doing these ones? Yeah. And then I'm like, if they're scraping it off with their finger, do they put it back in the tub or do they fucking eat it? And are they lying about that? Like, God, like I really want to know. I want to be a fly on the wall, Mackenzie. What do you reckon? Fucking don't. I don't know how you can have 12 grams of peanut butter. Like, <laughs> and just stop at 12 grams. Like, I mean, it's just kind of like that idea of oh, a serving of hummus is 20 grams. Who the fuck isn't having less than the fucking tub? I agree. <laughs> I'm sitting, you know, but um, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that happened to Wheat Beaks, unfortunately. RIP. Um, it was a fantastic food, uh, you know, fan- just amazing food. And then all these Fitzbos have come in and added their fucking Oreos and their biscoff to it, and now it's just being completely fucked. <laughs> well, I reckon that's a great way to uh, wrap up this conversation. <laughs> Wheat Beaks, you heard it first. Mackenzie thinks you're fucked. Um, because you know, fit chicks have taken it too far. Thank you very much for uh coming on, man. Really appreciate it. I'm sure uh, listeners will get a heap out of that. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for, (laughs) yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your days to chat with me and and invite me. I really appreciate that, means a lot. And, And like you said, I hope the listeners did actually get some value from it. Um, in terms of where people can find me moderately active on instagram um it's just at mackenzie baker with an underscore at the end no spaces um i do have a podcast um although that has i haven't done an episode for a couple of months you know being in there and stuff i've been on excuses i don't, don't want to hear them so there's a podcast called the macabolic podcast uh, you can follow fortitude nutrition coaching as well and uh i'm really open to people just sending me messages about questions or you know can you clarify this and and that's one thing I really want people to do after the JPS uh, Ultimate Evidence Based Conference is just really feel like they can message me about something in the presentation. Hey, I didn't understand that. Have you seen this paper instead? Um, this contradicts what you said. Like, you want to look at it, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, always feel free to shoot me a DM. And uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Next time I have my indulgence, I'm going to slide in. I've got some questions. Go for it, mate. <laughs> we'll, we'll, see, we'll see you uh in october and uh yeah. until then guys uh thank you for listening and we'll see you next time see you guys thank you